When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax, you booked a Verbo. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, I have an interview with Derek Thompson, who wrote a book called Hitmakers, a book that I love, and was so interested in talking to him about... The, the Parkland shootings. You know, I was thinking about why is gun control suddenly breaking through now when there seem to be terrible, um, you know, tragic massacres every few weeks. And this is the first time that I can remember where the victims have become a broadcast social movement. This is not to say it wasn't heart-wrenching to see the parents of Newtown, Massachusetts grieving over their dead children. But like the astonishing thing about Parkland is that the victims are visceral, visceral surrogates for their murdered friends. And to see them is to see both the living and the dead. And then we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as always. The message for uh, this week is just to remember, like, you got to take care of yourself and be intentional about the work. I think often sort of misinterpret exhaustion for impact that people feel like if they run themselves into the ground and like if they are like always moving and da 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 that is a sign in and of itself that they're making an impact and that's just not true you can be well rested and change the world you can like get eight hours of sleep and and do incredible work you can take care of yourself and experience your joy and fight against systems and structures of oppression it's not either or it's sort of a both and so so don't confuse exhaustion for impact not the same things let's go and here's the news with me, Brittany Packnett, education professional, former member of the Ferguson Commission and Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. I'm not going to say it. Uh, this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Sam, did you watch Roseanne? No, why would I do that? <laughs> no. But, um, boom. Uh, no. 18 million people. Roxanne. No, but I heard about it. I heard about it. 18 that it was, million uh, people watched it. Everybody you know, was talking about it. You said I show. heard about it. Trump's yeah, America she was, was like, really I problematic. Yeah. This is the same network, though, that wouldn't even air that blackish episode about kneeling. Mm-hmm. But they got. Meanwhile. Right, Mm-hmm. They got Roseanne on there. She's saying all this stuff. Everybody chasing the check. It's it's just one of those things that like I'm. I said this before, but like I'm all for different perspectives and viewpoints and experiences being depicted on television. I think that's important. But we also shouldn't get it twisted that like the caricature of the typical Trump voter as being this like blue collar working class white person is like only a half truth because it's also your white dentist, it's your white accountant, it's your white. Uh, engineer it's your white doctor mm-hmm. right so like let's not pretend that you know it was this it was singularly the sort of economic anxiety that got people voting for trump and this has been well litigated there's a lot of research on this but uh but you know and and this show is in some ways sort of perpetuating that mythology that it's like oh man just these like hard-working white folks in, in the suburbs of Illinois who just had no other choice but to vote for a xenophobic, racist, sexist bigot. Right. Yeah, actually, it was the higher-income folks, right? It was like middle class and up that had a higher proportion among white voters of picking Trump than 
folks who actually had uh, the lower income. Next time you go to your white dentist, look at them in the eye real hard. They are about to order um, season two of Ro- Roseanne. It just aired. The show just came After on. After one episode? Mm-hmm. Dang. It's the highest rated um, sitcom in recent memory, averaging a whopping 18.1 million viewers. That is insane. I'm going to have to watch Blackish twice this week just to right. make, up for, <laughs> make up for it. <laughs> right. So I remember when we decided to take on police unions in our Campaign Zero work. Uh, You all remember we got a lot of sideways looks, partially because people think we're all neoliberal union busters, which, to be clear, is not true. Uh, But mostly because people assumed that police unions had nothing to do with the problem of police violence. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. Many police unions have been acting in really subversive and undercover ways uh, to block justice and accountability. Unfortunately, but perhaps unsurprisingly, the same can be said of the NRA. So the Boston Globe recently reported that the NRA uses its funds and wide reach to not only elect pro-gun candidates, but to influence legislation and rulemaking that actually suppresses critical data on the depth and breadth of gun violence all behind the scenes. And they've been doing it for decades. So they do this in two ways. One is that they help pass laws that restrict access to gun violence data, both for the public and research universities. So data, for example, on which dealers are selling the most guns using crimes is hidden from us thanks to a 2003 amendment. Uh, And then two, they also make it difficult to actually conduct federally funded research. Of course, many of us have heard of the Dickey Amendment, which makes it near impossible for the CDC to conduct research that can be deemed uh, to advocate for gun control. Before those restrictions were placed, we had some really chilling but effective data in this fight. According to the article, roughly 1% of all gun stores in the country accounted for more than half of the crime guns the ATF traced in the late 1990s. In some cities, they found that just a few stores were responsible for selling weapons recovered in 70 to 90 90% of all gun crimes. Uh, so clearly, when we were able to access data, we were being told very important stories and able to trace a lot of the roots of this violence. And since these restrictions, we've not been able to access that same data or even collect some of that same data. Uh, and this is just another one of those ways that we have to continue to uncover what's happening behind the scenes in order to have a fully fleshed out fight uh, and be able to advocate for what we believe needs to be true. So this reminds me of, and I'm glad that you brought in the comparison with the police unions because in many ways they operate like the NRA uh, with regard to blocking police reform. But it reminds me of how little data uh, there was on police violence uh, going back to 2014 and how you know the federal government even still to this day doesn't have comprehensive data on the number of people killed by police in the United States and how we had to you know do that work ourselves working uh, to find the information local media reports police databases criminal records databases social media profiles and putting all of that together to create the data that the federal government wouldn't create uh, because they just didn't they didn't really seem to care enough to commit the resources to get this done. Uh, And I think about all the work that happens behind the scenes to actually uh, influence those decisions. And sometimes it's in legislation, uh, as we're seeing with gun violence, and other times it is uh, just sort of a tacit acknowledgement that, you know, we're going to prioritize researching particular things and completely ignore other things. You know, for example, they could tell you 
how much rainfall there has been in rural Missouri for the past hundred years, but they couldn't tell you how many people have been killed by police. And so I think uh, what we choose to research and the laws around what can be researched reflects uh, broader priorities and decisions about what matters. And I think now that we're in this moment where gun violence is such a huge conversation, you know, I know there has been some action in Congress to actually uh, make it a little bit easier for the CDC to research gun violence. But as you said, Bernie, that's that's not enough. And we need to be going much further to actually uncover uh, what the solutions are to this and, and begin advancing those. And I'm glad you brought up the, the NRA part of this because the NRA has, you know, obviously does a lot of work specific to guns and, and sort of attempting to saturate the the market uh, of anything that is gun or gun adjacent. But uh, I didn't know until I read this this piece from Mother Jones a few years ago uh, that they also have had a huge role in expanding the carceral state. So starting in 1992, as part of a now defunct program called Crime Strike, the NRA spent millions of dollars pushing a slate of supposedly anti-crime measures across the country that kept America's prisons full and built new ones to meet that demand. And so they spent money across the country to expand the number of beds that had to be filled, uh, more mandatory minimums, harsher parole sentences, adult sentences for juveniles, and critically, you know, most importantly, more and more and more and more prisons. And so the program has now been phased out, but thanks in part to the stricter sentencing guidelines and increased capacity that the NRA advocated for, the U.S. is locking up more people than it has, as we know, uh, at any point in history uh, and for longer amounts of time. And even though violent crime has dropped across the country, incarceration rates continue to increase. In recent weeks, we've been bringing up with a lot more frequency the role of money uh, and, and the role of capitalism in serving as an incentive to do things that run counter to, to the sort of societal good. And I think that this is emblematic of how the NRA's agenda even expands beyond the context of guns uh, and, and is committed to increasing not only the amount of guns that exist in society, but also increasing uh, the amount of fear, increasing the carceral state, increasing those things which are related to notions of uh, fear and notions of needing to protect oneself that will ultimately, and as we've discussed time and time again, help the bottom line. Uh, Clint, I didn't know before you brought this up about the NRA's relationship with uh, or history in encouraging like the three strikes laws and mandatory minimums. And it is this notion that like, you know, more crime equals more police equals more guns equals more infrastructure. And you think about like the NRA is not a lobby for gun owners, it's a lobby for the gun industry. Like that is what is happening right. here. And Brittany, when you talked about it, um, I didn't even know at all until you brought this up about the T-Hard Amendment. So we know about the Dickey Amendment. And in the, in the latest uh, appropriations bill, it looks like the Dickey Amendment is being watered down. The Dickey Amendment was what uh, prevented the federal government from researching gun violence, essentially. But the 2003 T-Hard Amendment, um, part of the Justice Department appropriations bill, essentially created a barrier for releasing data. So it's like what happens when research can be conducted, but it can't ever be publicly released. And what this amendment does is that it stops the ATF from sharing information about gun stores that have records of selling firearms. So you know from watching CSI and like whatever else, that when a gun is used in a crime, they can try and trace it back to like where it was sold, that the ATF has that information, but can't uh, legally can't release that at all to private researchers, to anybody. And it's a reminder that like the jig is up, right? That like, this is a result of choices that people have made at the policy level and laws and a set of practices. And 
sometimes as activists and organizers, like we just don't even know the the layer of decisions that have been made that we need to work to undo and create a new layer that like don't allow this stuff to happen. You get all these public institutions that are funded by the public and they should be accountable to the public and the accountability mechanisms should be clear. Yeah. And and to mention the changes that are being made to the Dickey Amendment, they actually have to be funded and are facing a lot of Uh, appropriations hurdles before they get there. The last thing I'll say, though, is that it's, of course, really important, and I want to reemphasize this, to apply a racial justice lens to gun control. We've talked about this a number of times in the pod, uh, but even now, black students in Parkland are speaking up to say that the increased police presence they're experiencing in their school, in their neighborhood, as a solution to the mass shooting is actually not safer for them. And unfortunately, a lot of news outlets did not pay attention to the press conference that they held just the other day. So we need to keep taking a clear and nuanced look as to how to solve this for all people and not just some people. And that means having the data to do so. We don't have to yield that fight. Uh, I learned this week, actually, that there are more supporters that have taken at least one action for Planned Parenthood than the NRA has members. So there are literally more of us than there are of them. And as long as we keep speaking the truth, nothing is ever impossible. So my piece of news is last week uh, in Baton Rouge, the decision was made by the Louisiana Attorney General not to charge the two officers who killed Alton Sterling back in 2016. Now, this is a case that we've been following for years now. There was uh, a sustained protest uh, in the aftermath of the video coming out of Alton Sterling's death. Uh, At that time, they said that there was no body camera video because the body cameras, quote, fell off before the incident happened. And now we learn and has been released body camera recordings that show prior to the cell phone footage that shows the officer shooting Alton Sterling, Officer Blaine Salamone came up to Alton Sterling, held a gun to his head, and threatened to shoot him 90 seconds before ending up shooting him. Despite all of this evidence, still the decision not to charge them. The Department of Justice, which would have to prove intent to charge the officers for depriving Alton Sterling of his civil rights, they had the intent right there with the comment by Officer Salamone saying that he intended to kill Alton Sterling, and still they declined to prosecute. Then the attorney general had a lower standard of proof, just had to prove that the officer acted unreasonably and still did not charge the officers. So the criminal justice system completely failed there. And of course, that is not an isolated incident. That is the rule. That is the standard. That is what happens in virtually every single case where police officers kill somebody. Uh, Every single year, just for some context, there are about 1,200 people killed by police in the United States. Of that, fewer than one half of 1% of those cases result in any sort of criminal conviction against the officer. You know, when I say 1,200 people are killed by police each year, we know that black communities face police violence at a much higher rate than the norm three times higher rate of being killed by police. In some cities like St. Louis, black men are killed by police at a rate twice as high as the U.S. murder rate, the rate of being killed by anyone, civilian or police. And in Baton Rouge, 10 people have been killed by police uh, since 2013, and all of them have been black men, all 10. But yet and still, the criminal justice system failed again to deliver justice for Alton Sterling. So the question is, what other systems and options are available for accountability? And oftentimes it ends up going to the police department to discipline or fire the officers involved. Uh, it looks like they likely will fire the officer, uh, Blaine Salamone, who shot Alton Sterling. But even then, we're hearing from activists that the Civil Service Board 
may overturn a decision to fire the officer because the civil service board in Baton Rouge is stacked with people who are biased in favor of the police, people who have close relationships with the police department and with the particular law enforcement family, uh, the salimonies there. So that option itself may not result in accountability. And so then the third option is what types of policies and practices and systemic changes can be enacted to prevent police from killing people in the first place and to strengthen the accountability system uh, so that this doesn't happen again. And what we see in Baton Rouge is that that option is also not an option because in the city council, the Baton Rouge Metro Council, it's actually gerrymandered in a way that prevents black communities from ever having a majority on the council. So the demographics in... Uh, East Baton Rouge Parish are about 46 to 48% black and 46 to 48% white. So about evenly split 50-50 black and white. And yet the city council has 12 seats, seven of which have a jurisdiction, a district that has more than 60% white population, which means that by design, white folks have a permanent majority on the council. And indeed, what we see now is that there are seven white council members and five black council members. And because of that, the council has not moved, has voted down many proposals from community to strengthen civilian review boards uh, and to Im- impose residency requirements and other reforms that, that might be able to address this issue. Van Newkirk, uh, writer at The Atlantic, he talked about, um, and I think put it really succinctly, how the whole problem with this case uh, can really be summed up by one quote from the federal prosecutor, which is, quote, we would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Officer Salamone did not believe that Mr. Sterling was actually going for a gun. And so, like, if you really look at that quote, it's that you have to prove that the officer could not have believed something that the officer is claiming to believe, right? So it's this grossly impossible standard to suggest that in order to win a case, you have to prove that they did not believe something that they're telling you they believe. I I struggle to understand how it would be possible to ever in that sort of context, uh, come up with a verdict that would do anything other than, uh, you know, find these officers not guilty. So it's really emblematic of um, how the system it makes it virtually impossible to hold police officers accountable when they murder people. Uh, and and it, it becomes increasingly clear with the videos and with the statements and with the, the newer video and footage coming out that, that that's what this was, that this was a murder, that the man said, I'm going to kill you. And then that's what he did. He killed him. I've actually, you know, been talking about this for a little bit. And today, I just find myself really feeling for the people of Baton Rouge. Alton Sterling, of course, was killed within days of Philando Castile. And after both of those happened, I had just come back into the country. I was in the Caribbean. I felt just free and free to be me and just surrounded by dope blackness. And I felt safe and unencumbered. And as soon as I got back to the States, my stomach dropped uh, and the walls caved in again. And I remember the morning after I learned about Alton Sterling uh, and Philando Castile, I literally couldn't get out of the bed. Like I emailed everyone in my office. I said I need to take a personal day. My leadership team understood. I just couldn't function that day. And then I picked up the phone and I called the crew and I was like, well, we're going down to Baton Rouge. And, you know, had been talking with activists down there who who had invited us uh, and made the choice to drive down. And I don't necessarily feel that same level of paralysis, but the feeling is familiar and it's creeping back in. 
and I'll I'll get past it like I always do, like we always do. I will press forward like we always do and get back to work. But there is so much to be done. And sometimes we hear the stories and we hear the names and we hear once again that charges will not be brought or that the officer won't be convicted in the rare occurrence that charges were actually brought. And there's just an exhaustion that happens sometimes. And there's just a trauma and a pain that you can feel from having this be the case over and over and over again, even though you're not surprised. So we talk a lot about the the systemic and structural issues that almost guarantee that the police officers won't be held accountable. There are many. Uh, if there are any lawyers out there or legal scholars who study Graham v. Connor, there's a court case, a Supreme Court case that creates, it's Graham v. Connor. It creates this idea of like, what would a reasonably objective police officer do? And it is what's cited in every case that we find where police get off. It's like, this is sort of the crux. And, and the people that sort of defend the police, they're like, well, a reasonable officer would have been like, they thought they had a gun, so the force is justified. Or a reasonable officer uh, would have ran after somebody who runs away from them. And like, so if there are any scholars on Granby Connor, please email me, DeRay at thisisthemovement.org. But I'm also fascinated by this idea that like, we know what the quote reasonable police officer does around black people is very different with the quote reasonable officer does around white people that we've seen white people uh, de-escalated and detained and do heinous things. And like the reasonable officer doesn't think that they're a threat. The reasonable officer sort of just allows them to do whatever. But with black people, there's this like undertone that like the reasonable officer like must think that you are like a threat must think you have a gun must think you have to kill them uh, and you see this court precedent that literally is like if you don't comply with every single request from the police officer if you like resist in any way then it justifies the threat and with the out and starling i don't know if you read the um sort of the statement by the da but we have indication that the that the officers like cursed at Sterling, said that they would kill him, uh, and and you should like watch the the videos and stuff for yourself if you want to hear those statements. But what the DA uh, says, he says, despite the aggressive, purposeful tone of Officer Salamone, Mister Sterling again begins to resist as Officer Lake continues his attempts to gain control of Mister Sterling's hands. You're like. I don't know if saying I'm going to kill somebody is aggressively purposeful. That's like really, that's a lot of license with the way that you're talking about threatening to take somebody's life and then like you then go take it. So I think there's this whole layer of like how the courts actually protect the police at the structural level and how the DAs use that as a way to completely opt out of accountability. So last week, Linda Brown, who was the little girl at the center of the Brown v. Board Supreme Court case in 1954, uh, passed away. Uh, and the background is that her parents were recruited as a potential test case against school segregation because they lived in an integrated neighborhood, but Linda attended uh, a segregated school. So NAACP told her father to find the nearest white school uh, to his home and to take your child as a, and, and a witness, uh, attempt to enroll, and then come back and tell us what happened. And he did that and with his daughter, Linda, and she was not enrolled, as one would expect. And the NAACP and the other organizations that were working on the case uh, used them to challenge the separate but equal doctrine. Uh, one of the fa most famous parts of this trial was the doll test, uh, where children were shown a black doll and a white doll and asked, which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? Which doll is the smart doll? Which doll is the dumb doll? Uh, and both black and white children 
were asked these questions continuously and continuously associated the positive traits with the white doll and the negative traits with the black doll. I think I should note as as a piece of social science that this method has been uh, sort of interrogated and, and is seen as, as methodologically controversial. But at that time, it really played a central role in swaying the justices. And the Supreme Court said in a really unexpected unanimous 9-0 decision that, quote, to separate them from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. And with that, the court overturned decades of precedent in a way that with a sort of singular moral voice and unanimity that uh, pretty much no one expected would happen at the time. And But obviously the story doesn't end there. And there were cities like Charlotte that did some incredible busing work and integrated their schools in remarkable ways. There were cities like New York that never actually really integrated their schools and instead changed housing policy, which made the integration of schools more difficult. And then there were schools that kind of complied with the court order in a really half-hearted, minimalist kind of way. And then there were schools that said, we would actually rather shut down our entire school system than allow integration. And many of them did that. So you had entire school districts across the country shut down because white folks were committed to not having their children attend school with black children. And today, in many cities across the country, segregation is as bad as it was uh, right before uh, and right after the Brown v. Board ruling. So, so Linda Brown's legacy is central to American history uh, and central to reorienting um, and recalibrating the, this very social fabric of the American project in ways that we should forever be grateful for and, and increasingly mindful of as more and more schools become resegregated. And if you haven't listened, The Daily, the New York Times uh, Daily Podcast has a really incredible episode on this. Uh, they aired it last week. It really goes into detail about some of the stuff that we brought up. You should check it out. So, Clint, I'm glad that you brought this up. This is like a reminder that this myth that we often hear that, you know, after Brown v. Board, after, you know, Little Rock, you know, there was this big move to desegregate schools and like that battle was won. Like that actually is not a reflection of what actually happened. And that what actually happened is uh, white folks all across the country, not just in the South, but also in the North, vigorously opposed integration. So much so that they, even in places that did manage to achieve integration, they were successful in rolling that back. Um, and even in places where schools were integrated and continue to be integrated, you have segregation within schools where you know black students are in different classes, are tracked into lower uh, tracks with you know classes that are not as rigorous, classes that where they are among other uh, black students and not actually integrated uh, with white students in those same schools in their sort of daily life. And I think you know, what that tells me, number one, is that we need to have a conversation about integration again, right? And that, in fact, I'm not convinced that the majority of white folks actually agree with the principle of integration or the reality of integration still. So how do we continue to make the case for this and and not sort of accept that that battle was sort of won and that argument was won and that, you know, everyone's on board? Because when you look at the facts and you look at what's actually happening, you know, it's clear that a lot of folks are not on board with the basic principle of integration, whether that's in housing, whether that's in education. And we need to be having the same conversations that we were having in the 1960s to begin to roll back the movement that, that Clint described uh, over the past several decades. You know, I'm just reminded that you know, people talk about 
these battles is happening 10,000 years ago and like this stuff is still pretty recent. We're still like the fact that the the central character in Brown v. Board of Education just passed away is like it is a reminder that the court case was not too long ago. So this work continues to be work that we fight for because it's still present. I'm so glad that you brought this up, uh, first of all, because we often can think about landmark court cases and not be thinking about the people and the stories and the humanity that's behind each one of them. Uh, Because at the root of this is really a question about the humanity of young children of color. Uh, And that doll test, as you've already shared, was also a landmark piece of research that when replicated today will yield the same results. And I just think it's an important reminder that what we do and the choices that we make at policy and political levels really do have real ramifications for young people and the messages they internalize about themselves. So we've been talking, obviously, a lot about gun violence, um, and some people's solution has been to increase police presence at schools. Well, there are certain schools that already have a high police presence and certain ones that don't. Of course, the schools that already have a high police presence happen to be in low-income, usually urban neighborhoods, and the students in those classrooms are often students of color and they internalize a message about themselves. They internalize the idea that they're seen as inherently criminal. They internalize the idea that something must be more wrong with them than the kids across the city. Um, That something must be more inherently problematic about them or their neighborhood, their families or their surroundings than kids who go to school in wealthier places. Uh, And so it's really important to recognize that all of these decisions have a psychological effect on young people, on their adolescent development, and on the messages that they receive and internalize about who they are, where they come from, and where they live. That's why it's so, so, so important to really listen to young people, to listen to their families, to actually listen to the people who are most affected by our policy as we create it. This was a hard week because there's so much going on that I think we should talk about. But my news is about Louisiana. And, I'm, you know, we talk a lot about uh, DAs. I, I think that there's like a another part of DAs that we don't talk about, which is like the things that they oppose and the, <laughs> and the way that they sort of stand in, in the way of justice. So in Louisiana, which is, you know, incarcerates more people than anywhere else in the country, there are two bills this legislative session that would help with prosecutorial accountability. So the first bill would establish an oversight commission that would collect data from each district attorney's office and make the information available to the public. And the second, uh, which is called the Prosecutorial Accountability Bill, would set up an 11-member commission with the power to investigate the acts of prosecutors, including calling witnesses, issuing subpoenas, and making findings of fact. The commission would also be able to issue reports and recommend impeachment proceedings against specific prosecutors for cause. And this is on the heels of there being prosecutors who um, have, like, been shady and like put people in jail and they like uh, they actually didn't commit the crime and things like that and of course the da's are like wholly against uh, they're against it so the executive director of the louisiana district attorney association said uh, to this reporter uh, that the initiatives were quote not well thought out they were blatantly unconstitutional it sounds like someone is trying to make some kind of a point and that he quote really didn't have time to talk about it and it's one of those things where like again public officials should be accountable to the public and there shouldn't be any part of the system where like there's a black hole with regard to data and like we have no clue how to hold people accountable who are uh, making decisions not on behalf of the public but on behalf of their career and i think about louisiana as like a place where this is needed um 
you know, dramatically. And it's interesting to see prosecutors sort of fight against any attempted accountability. So having been born and raised in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, you know, raised in the state that is the world's prison capital, quite literally, Louisiana's incarceration rate is nearly five times that of Iran's, 13 times that of China, and 20 times that of Germany. Uh, one in 86 adult Louisianans in general uh, are doing time behind bars, which is nearly double the national average. And among black men from New Orleans, one in 14 is behind bars, uh, and one in seven is either in prison, on parole, or on probation. And this is actively, not has been at some point, but like today, one in seven black men in New Orleans is either in prison, parole, probation, some sort of carceral surveillance. So this is, it's a staggering issue, and and, and I think I just wanted to add some context to, to DeRay's point, but uh, Louisiana is, I'm proud of many, many things, Um with regard to being from New Orleans, um, but this is certainly not one of them. One of the things I find really promising about this is that it takes a systemic look at how to handle criminal justice reform instead of just looking at one bad prosecutor or one problematic judge or court or precinct or state. They're really taking um, a systematic approach and looking at the entire system as a whole and understanding that it's only going to be through systemic accountability that we actually make a change. I think that's such an important step. And as we look towards social change, we have to be thinking about these things similarly. Beyond there, though, we have to also be thinking about how we actually get to a place where we prevent these kind of atrocities, where we prevent people who shouldn't be spending the kind of time in jail that they are from doing so. Um, and that has everything to do with how you are hiring and training everyone from police officers to prosecutors and judges, uh, as well as how you're holding them accountable on the back end. And it's going to take us looking both at the front end and the back end of how this works uh, and how um, mass incarceration manifests for us to actually make a difference. But I'm certainly glad to see that this is happening. And I'm hopeful about not just what this can do in this particular state, but actually the model that it can set for states all around the country. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I said earlier, this is a a reminder of how deep the system is and the systemic uh, inequities go, uh, particularly in a place like Louisiana. And I'm also reminded that there are bills that are being considered to address it, right? So there's the prosecutorial accountability bills, and there's also a bill being considered right now to repeal the non-unanimous jury uh, decision uh, amendment, which we've talked about in the past that allows uh, a non-unanimous jury where only 10 of the 12 members uh, agree uh, to convict somebody uh, of a felony. And there's a bill being considered right now that would put an amendment on the ballot that would repeal that and require a unanimous jury uh, in order to have a conviction. So there are solutions being considered. Uh, It really is uh, a question of, you know, can folks who are uh, organizing around it successfully overcome the resistance from, you know, the DAs, the resistance from uh, other law enforcement uh, and folks on the far right in order to make sure that the state does the right thing and moves in the right direction to no longer be the number one incarcerator of the entire world. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More politics the people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny, 
Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Derek Thompson. Derek, thanks so much for joining us today on Pot to the People. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Wouldn't it be awkward if your name wasn't Derek? And I was just like, <laughs> Derek, thanks so much for your name. Actually, I'm Jeff, but uh, like, sure, yeah. Derek's a fine name. So I reached out to, no, the way we met, actually, I tweeted about the first story in the book mm-hmm. without mentioning the book at all. And you were like, are you reading Hitmaker? And I was like, <laughs> I am reading Hitmaker. And then I was like, oh my God, you're the guy who wrote it. I was at the gym. I was at the gym in the East Village. And... Um, uh, what I do when I go to the gym is I don't lift a single weight. I just walk around reading Twitter, uh, and I follow you. And you published, you, you you wrote something about the Kaibot 7. You said, I just learned about the Kaibot 7. Holy crap. And I was like, no, holy crap for me. You're clearly reading my book. So I tweeted at you, and uh, five minutes later, you, uh, you DM'd me. And then I continued to not work out at the gym, and we just sort of, you know, DM back and forth. And I'm like... We got to get him on the pod. So everybody, he, Derek wrote a book called Hitmakers. It is great. I am almost finished <laughs> it, uh, but the parts I've read have been amazing. Thank you. Why, wh- how, like, how did you, why? How, how the book, <laughs> like, how did you, like, why was this an issue for you? So the tagline of the book uh, is how to succeed in an age of distraction. And it's a book about the science of popularity, about why we like what we like. And at The Atlantic, I had been an economics writer, and I had started writing in 2009. And the big question facing the world in 2009 was, how did the Great Recession start, and how do we get out of it? And then around like 2010, 2011, the recovery had become a little bit sort of thermostatic. It was kind of the same jobs numbers every month, the same GDP number every month. And I wanted to go in search of another really big, awesome question. And I realized that an issue that I had always sort of wondered about was why do some cultural products succeed um, in music, in movies, in television, and why do other similar cultural products not? Um, Is there a formula for beauty, for popularity? And as I came to sort of research the book, I realized that hits are a bit of a cultural mirror um, that I'm not sure there's a better reflection of our identity than what we pay attention to and what we buy. Um, We can lie to pollsters, we can lie to surveyors, we can lie to our friends, we can lie to Facebook, but we can't lie with our attention. Our attention, in a way, is the most honest reflection of our identity. We can't lie with our attention is a great, that's a good line. Thank you, thank you. That's a good line. But we we can't. Um, You know, if uh, you are the sum of your attention, you could say. And so, in that sense, a book about why we pay attention to what we pay attention to is a book about who we are, a book about human nature. And in many ways, that's that's the book that I wanted to write, a book that would use stories of hits throughout pop culture history, from Impressionism, which was your original tweet, to rock and roll, to Facebook, to Bumble, to music hits and movies, and use these stories of successful cultural products to explain essentially who we are. Now, I have to admit, so the book is is like full of stories, cool stories, definitely things that I was like, had no clue, didn't know, like didn't know we measured that, didn't know there's an industry about this. Is there a story or a set of stories that you're like, that like really shocked you that weren't just like surprising or weren't just like cool, but you're like, 
Oh my God, I had no clue. Um, one of my favorite stories from the book is the story of the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, as most people know, the Billboard Hot 100 is counted down, counts down the most popular 100 songs every single week. Um, it's been around since the mid-1950s. But for the vast majority of the Billboard Hot 100's existence, it's been a complete and total lie. And it's been a lie because Billboard, for the longest time, couldn't get access to actual data about what songs were playing on the radio and what songs and what records were being sold. Um, they could only go by um, the testimony of DJs and record store owners. But both the DJs and record store owners would lie all the time. The DJs would lie because they were often being paid by the labels to play <laughs> specific music. And then the record store owners would lie for an interesting different reason, which is that they had scarce records. So if you've sold out of Bruce Springsteen, oh. but you have a lot of ACDC, then why would you tell Billboard that Bruce Springsteen is selling well? There's no Bruce right. left to sell. You want to say, oh, ACDC selling super well, get people into the stores to buy ACDC. And so it turned out that for the longest time, the Billboard Hot 100 was not a reflection of audience tastes. It was more a reflection of basically white guys on the coasts at the labels, their tastes, and the fact that, you know, you had this sort of bias toward churn, this bias toward um, novelty and buying new records um, at, the, at the record level. So this all changed in 1991, because in 1991, Billboard suddenly got data on what was playing on the radio, and they started using point-of-sales data um, to figure out exactly what records were being sold at the record stores. And overnight, the, the portfolio, the, the picture of American music taste changed. And it changed in two really important ways. The first important way is that suddenly the songs that became popular didn't rise up the charts and then fall immediately. They rose up the charts and they just stayed there. The 25 songs that have been on the Billboard Hot 100 for the longest period of time have all come out since 1991. And it's not because music got so much better in the 1990s. It's because suddenly the charts were a more honest reflection of Americans' music opinion. And it turned out that Americans just like hearing the same music over and over and over and over and over again. But the second and most interesting way the Billboard charts changed is that rock and roll started a slow and structural decline off the charts. And two genres overlooked by those white guys in the coast suddenly soared up the charts. It's my favorite part of the book. Yep. Country and, of course, hip-hop and rap. And so you can literally see this. Because in 1991, um, you have R.E.M., right after the, the Billboard methodology changes, R.E.M. falls out of the top 100, I'm uh, sorry, falls out of the number one um, uh, slot, and NWA enters the number one slot, becoming the first hip-hop group to ever have a number one album in American history. And this happened after, right after, the Billboard um, method change. And so what's so interesting about this story to me is that for the longest period of time, people looking at the Billboard Hot 100 to get an honest reflection of who Americans are and what they listen to, they were looking at a lie. They were looking at a lie being advanced um, by power and privilege on the coast. And then suddenly when you had this change in 91 and a more honest reflection um, of American tastes, you enter a period that's really been um, 
just the triumph, really, of, of hip-hop and rap. I mean, even still today, 27 years later, you go to Spotify, you know, hot, the Top 100 or Billboard Hot 100, and hip-hop and rap um, are still completely dominant, not only in that which you would call hip-hop, but also in that which you would call just pop. I mean, Justin Bieber, in many ways, is taking as much from, um, you know, boy band uh, uh, timbers as he is from sort of hip-hop genres. Um, And so in many ways, 91 was this inflection point that marked the moment when rock and roll fell and hip-hop began to dominate. When you think about culture, like, what what does that mean to you? And I ask because, as you know, there's like a whole sort of line of political thought that talks about culture as like a battleground, da-da-da. From my reading of the book, sort of culture is like this sort of nexus of like art and politics, I think, and sort of maybe something else. But I thought I'd just ask you since I... It's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an awesome big question. Uh, what is culture? You could say on the one hand that um, culture is the sum of our attention. Um, you could say that, that culture is the sum um, of our artistic production. Uh, you could also say, as, as I do in the preface to the paperback, which came out in February, that it's in airports to everybody, which is in airports. Yes. You know, you really get to meet an author. You're like, Oh my God, I love your book. <laughs> it's in airports. <laughs> it is in airports. That culture, um, is essentially the sum of cults. Um, that I think that it is that increasingly in an age of, of nichification and fragmentation that we live in today, um, where there doesn't seem to be one sort of cultural mainstream, that culture is now just the sum of many, many cults. And I don't think of cult as, as a bad word. I think of it actually as, um, as a neutral word. In sociology, cult is defined um, as a positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. So an answer to a problem hmm. is a cult. And the really cool thing about that definition is that the sociological definition of coolness is the exact same. It's a positive rebellion against an illegitimate mainstream. Hmm. And so um, the difference between that which we call cool and that which we call cult is actually just, you know, a, a matter of degree. Um, and so I, and I think in many ways, you know, culture, you could say, is, is this is sort of the, the sum of all of us trying to define ourselves against um, the problems that we see in the world, the problem of the mainstream. Now... Not to give away more stories from the book, but there are these fascinating things about the music industry or like how the world processes music and like what becomes a hit and what doesn't become a hit. Uh, It made me think of the role of luck or Mm -hmm. like just chance because sort of you and again, you should read the book, everybody, but you talk about sort of a mechanism that like things could be hits, but like they just didn't become hits. Right. But they sort of had the formula for what a hit was. How do you think about the role of luck or like, should we not think about the role of luck? We should of course think about the role of luck. Uh, maybe my favorite story from the book is the story of rock around the clock. Uh, the first rock and roll hit, um, in American history. And the great thing about this story is that rock around the clock comes out in 1954. Um, and it's a complete flop. Uh, no one uh, listens to it, essentially. It only sells a couple thousand records. Um, But one of the people who buys uh, the record Rock Around the Clock is a 10-year-old boy in Los Angeles named Peter Ford. And Peter Ford's father is named Glenn Ford. And Glenn Ford is in this movie called Blackboard Jungle, which is one of these juvenile delinquency movies that were so popular in the 1950s because as scared as we are of young people today, we were terrified of teenagers in the 1950s. And um, the director of Blackboard Jungle, uh, 
uh, he wants his movie to begin um, with a real, what he called, jump jive tune, a scary song. Um, and he visits his star's house, uh, he visits Glenn Ford's house, and he says, do you have any sort of scary music for me? And Glenn Ford says, no, actually, I don't. My favorite kind of music is Hawaiian folk. That's not going to be of much help to you. Um, but my son, uh, Petey Ford, listens to a lot of what was then called race music, you know, because blacks were obviously the um, founders of the rock and roll genre and, um, and R&B. And so um, he visits Peter Ford and he says, give me what you have. And Peter Ford, who I called and spoke to in reporting this book, told me that he handed the director of the movie um, a stack of records, most of which were by uh, black bands like the Orioles. But one of them was Rock Around the Clock. Uh, and Rock Around the Clock ended up playing at the beginning of Blackboard Jungle, uh, in the middle of Blackboard Jungle, and at the end of Blackboard Jungle. And it was only then, after the movie came out, that it became the number one song in the country, the first rock and roll song to ever hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and eventually the second best-selling single of all time. Wow. So, you know, when you think about this song, and you try to explain its success purely by sort of listening to it, you know, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, you... You can't explain its success just by the melody. I don't think melody. I know the song, by the way. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. You know that one? No. Nope. I don't think I know that. That's all right. That's all right. But it, you can't explain it by, by purely listen, listening to it because it was a total flop <clears throat> in 1954 and then this enormous hit in 1955. The only way to explain its success is by looking to distribution, looking to the fact that when it came out on the radio, it didn't succeed, but when it came out in a dangerous movie... It did succeed. And so when, I, when you sort of expand that lesson to think about cultural products, social movements, the lesson is you can't just work on the product itself and hope that that will go viral. You can't just work on, on the framing device, on the content itself. Just as important, if not more important, is the marketing the distribution, the plan to get it out there into the cultural bloodstream. Um, and that is the lesson to take from this, the story of Rock Around the Clock and, and one of the stories, I think, to take from, from the book. Is there a follow-up coming? Is there Hitmakers 2 or is there like a Thought Makers? Thought like, Makers, right. Uh, well, so I actually... Idea Makers. Idea Makers, right. I, um, I'm, I'm playing right now with, with several ideas uh, for a, a new book. Um, I'd love to work on... I'm in the process of working on a long project on the history of the American dream, on um, the, the, the dark side of this country's belief that effort always equals outcome. Because that's what the American dream says in a way. It says, if you work hard enough, then anything can happen. Have you seen that study about the seventh graders? Uh, which one? It's about, uh, <clears throat> it's the first study that links, that sort of shows that Kids who believe in meritocracy do worse later. It's a middle school study. Yeah, I, I, th I, I've seen something quite like this. Okay. So yeah, I don't know if it's the exact study. But here's a really interesting uh, data point that, that goes right to this. There's a study um, that asks Americans and Europeans. It says, um, do you believe the poor are poor because of lack of work ethic or because they're unlucky? And Europeans are much more likely to say, well, it's because they're unlucky. It's because they're unlucky because for the sheer, um, uh, the sheer fact they were born in a bad neighborhood um, or the color of their skin is being discriminated against in, in their area. But in the U.S., people are much more likely to say, no, uh, it's because of bad work ethic. 
because we believe in the American dream. Effort equals outcome. If you work hard enough, you will succeed. So if you are poor, that is evidence of lack of effort. But what happens, ironically, is that it turns out that in Europe, they end up taxing the rich a bit more and distributing that income to the poor a little bit more, thus helping the poor get closer to the middle class, which means that in many European countries, you have more social mobility, more upward mobility. It's easier for the poor to work hard and enter the middle class, which ironically means that the American dream is more likely to happen not in America in Europe. <laughs> Right. And a really interesting implication of this that I'm grappling with and, and, and trying to, um, to turn into a, a longer project is, is this question. Is it possible that it's precisely Americans' belief in the American dream that makes it less likely to happen here? Mm -hmm. And is it precisely Europeans' incorporation of the concept of luck and the concept of structural discrimination and structural poverty that makes the American dream more likely to happen in other countries. And this would be a profound idea because it would, it would mean that the central American myth, the most important story that we tell ourselves as a country, might make it less likely um, for us to, to achieve um, the, the dream that has our name by it. Now, how do you explain Beyonce? <laughs> how do I explain Beyonce? Um, uh, I mean, you know, how do you explain Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel? I mean, how do you explain, you know, perfection? I have no idea. Um, she's, uh, <laughs> she's not only, like, got one of the best voices of her generation, she's also an extraordinary dancer and unbelievably beautiful. Um, and I, I don't think it, it requires... Um, uh, much academic theory to put together uh, why does a an extraordinarily beautiful woman um, with a historic voice um, and exceptional charisma uh, succeed? I mean, and, and plus, she's an unbelievable songwriter, um, which might be, I think, her, um, her most underappreciated skill because um, the, her, her, her voice and, and her beauty are so obvious and sometimes you just forget how complex some of those songs are and yet how like, effective. So, I mean, you put it all together, there's nothing that she appears to be bad at. Um, what is that line from the, the show, um, The Good Place, um, where the guy who, who plays a stand-in for God um, says, uh, um, everything can be, uh, most things can only be 100% perfect, but some things can be 104% perfect. Um, and, uh, and the girl goes, really? And he says, yes, of course. How do you think we made Beyonce? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How do you explain the role of resources, right? That like Trump, Bernie, any of these, any of the, any people that aren't traditionally elite, there's so few people that break through who don't just have an absurd amount of resource. I think about one of the things that made the protests sort of in Ferguson so different than everything we've seen since mm -hmm is that we were just like out in the middle of the street with phones, right? Like we weren't getting like, we weren't getting million dollar donations from celebrities. People weren't sending like jets to come pick up, you know, like it was literally sort of like random people Twitter. Mm -hmm. One of the things you see now, right, is like this just influx of resources is actually like helping sort of activism change. You think about Trump, there is no Trump without him being a billionaire. Mm -hmm. There's no Sanders campaign without the gazillion small dollar donors. So how do you think about the role of money in terms of the hitness? That's a great question. Um, political campaigns 
are media organizations. One of the most important elements of, of a political <coughs> campaign is simply to be seen, to get that person and that message in front of as many people as possible. Um, Trump was extraordinary at doing this, not only because he was independently wealthy, but also because he was independently outrageous. He kept saying things that were just so crazy that CNN essentially made Trump, you know, their entire primetime lineup and daytime lineup, right? And CNN has been criticized for essentially giving Trump free advertising in such a way that made it easy for him to uh, get an enormous amount of public support, um, an enormous amount of attention, and thereby run away with the Republican nomination. So money is, is important in as much as it can buy attention and, you know, buy mind share. Um, to that extent, you know, with, with Ferguson and even with, you know, the, the protests that we're seeing now with the Parkland teenagers and the movement now against guns, um, one of the really important elements there is, is not only the fact that it's bringing a lot of people um, into public spaces in order to protest and, and be together and, and unite for a message, but also that it's getting broadcasters to pay attention to them. And to broadcast those protests to all the people sitting at home who might be thinking in their head, who might have in their head the kernel of a radical idea thinking um, the Black Lives Matter movement really has a point. The Parkland teenagers really have a point. The, 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 um, you know, the, the Women's March really has a point. Um, but they're still at home sort of thinking about it, not ready to enter the streets. It's really important for movements, I think, to co-op broadcast power, to create a moment that demands broadcasters to pay attention so that you um, show all those sort of marginal participants who are, still, who are still sitting on the couch. This is a movement that is gaining momentum. And you can come join it, maybe by joining the next march, maybe by voting for someone in your next local um, or national election, um, maybe by you know, donating uh, to Black Lives Matter um, or to um, a, a, an organization that's trying to oppose the NRA. Um, but it's really important to have both, to have people, yes, but also to, um, to have broadcast media pay attention to your message so that you can build momentum for it. What are the takeaways that you think people can leverage from the book for either activism, for their lives? Like not everybody's going to have a hit on the Billboard 100 and, and not everybody's going to be an impressionist or, uh, or like going to make a hit in sort of the cultural sense, but people can make a hit in an impact like where they are. Right? Yeah. So like what are the lessons you think people can take away? So I, I, I want to be humble in extending a book which is about the success of cultural products to examining the success of, of something more like movements. Um, and I don't want people to think like, oh, because I wrote a book about the psychology of music and the economics of film, I think I can you know, predict the success of, of criminal justice. That said, I think there are three, three big areas where the lessons of my book can be useful for people who I'm think ready. about social movements. Okay. Everybody, you're hearing it first. You're <laughs> hearing it first. The first is that both cultural hits and social movements involve aspirational emotion. People want to participate in uplifting stories, right? That's why we go to see superhero movies. It's why we want to step into the shoes of protagonists who make us feel bigger than we are. That's why aspirational emotion works for cultural products. But people, I think, are also more likely to join social movements that seem to be succeeding, and that might sound tautological, but I think it's really profoundly important. Um, if you look at a graph, for example, of um, gay marriage approval 
1999, less than 30% of Americans thought marriages between same-sex couples should be recognized as valid. Now it's nearly 70%. It's just been an unbelievable sea change. And one of, lots of people say this, one of the fastest um, uh, uh, moving social movements in American history. The big swing, though, seems to happen right around 2008, 2009. That's when the trickle becomes a flood. Um, In fact, a quick stat, in the eight years before 2009, support for gay marriage among independents actually declined. In the eight years after 2009, it rose 31 points. So this seems to be the inflection point. And, and I looked at it. You know, what happened in 2008, 2009? Maybe it was Obama. Maybe it was the election of Obama and that there was a halo effect around his inauguration and his presidency that was a boon for liberal causes. But 2008 and 2009 were also the moment where there was legislative and legal momentum for gay marriage when it became really undeniable. In, in those two years, um, the rights of gay couples to enjoy equal benefits and protection was upheld by the Supreme Courts of California, Connecticut, and Iowa. Legislation was passed by Vermont, New Hampshire, Washington, D.C., Maine. So a lot of those decisions were reversed by referenda or by veto. But what's important, I think, is that those decisions became national news stories. They created an environment where it became impossible to deny the existence of a gay rights movement. And it created what I guess you could call like the thrill of momentum. People could read news stories and say, this is happening. Something is changing. When I enter this flood, there's going to be momentum behind me. And so that's – and so in, in both ways, um, you, you can see that, that the social movement enjoyed momentum um, because these news stories of legal decisions um, and legislation were booing them. Um, so that's number one. Number two is that um, – both cultural hits and social movements um, involve social networks, Um, that social movements spread like other innovations spread. And I think that activists could maybe learn from the literature of cultural diffusion. Um, In my book, I talk about how it's easier to piggyback off of existing networks than it is to build new ones. You do talk about that. It's great. The examples are great. Yeah. So, so Facebook is the obvious example, right? Um, and, and Facebook has all, all sorts of problems now in terms of the way they collect data. But we're looking right now at its ability to, to grow as a movement. Facebook didn't say, we're going to give Facebook to one college student and just hope they spread it. Facebook digitized all of Harvard and all of Yale. And it's called the Facebook. Did you go to school? And, that had and I went to, uh, yes, I went to Northwestern, and there was a book there called was the, the Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Do you remember when it was thefacebook.com and not of facebook.com? Of course, I remember that. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, I, and when I when I saw thefacebook.com, I literally thought it was like a, a school project to yes. just put the my Facebook my yeah. right the the paper Facebook online. Um, so so in, in many ways, just just digitized college networks. It just said, "Hey, everyone at that college, get online." Um, and 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 I'm sure that there are are are, are analogs for this in in the social movement world, um, that it's difficult to go to one person and one, like a, to, to act like a, like a Greenpeace person and say, um, can I sign you up? Can I sign you up? Can I sign you up? You know, going one by one by one. But rather, what if you approach like an entire local chapter of some movement and try to get them all on board? Or you take, um, you go to a, to a church and you try to get the entire church on board um, with your idea. Or maybe you go straight, maybe you just use the Facebook method. You go to a college 
and you say, hey, this is a, this is, you know, whether it's gun control or um, criminal justice, you tell the folks at that college, we need all of you. You guys are the leaders of the future. Everyone get on board here. That's not a one-to-one strategy that you just hope will go viral. That's a one-to-one thousand or one-to-one million strategy that's already viral just by the sheer beauty of the fact that you're broadcasting it. So in both social, in both you know, cultural hits and in social movements, um, it's important to pay attention to the science of social networks. Um, and then the last point that I, w- that I would, um, where I think there's a really strong connection, um, is uh, the use of broadcast technology. And I guess I've already th- um, talked a little bit about that, about how important broadcast technology um, has been to the creation of, of cultural hits, but it's also clearly so important for social movements. Um, you know, the, the Parkland shootings, you know, I was thinking about why, why is this issue suddenly breaking through? Why, why is gun control suddenly breaking through now when there seem to be terrible, um, you know, tragic massacres every few weeks? And this is the first time that I can remember where the victims have become a broadcast social movement. Um, this is not to say it wasn't heart-wrenching to see the parents of Newtown, Massachusetts grieving over their dead children. But like the astonishing thing about Parkland is that the victims are visceral, visceral surrogates for their murdered friends. And to see them is to see both the living and the dead. And it makes it such an incredibly powerful moment to see their passion and their articulation. And that's why the Parkland teens, I think, have been a a broadcast revolution. Um, And they have had such an incredible um, impact on Americans' attitudes toward gun rights. In fact, according to a recent poll, Republicans now are more... um, in favor of gun control um, than at any time in, in polling history. So you, you pull all these three things together. I'm sorry, I've talked for a bit. But um, one, um, the power of aspirational emotion in building social movements. Two, leveraging social networks. Two, leveraging social networks. Existing networks. Existing networks, okay. right. Piggybacking off of existing networks. Um, and three, um, being smart about co-opting the power of broadcast technology, getting people who have that one-to-one million broadcast to pay attention to you so that your message reaches those people sitting on the couch wondering if they can join a movement um, and telling them, yes, you can. There's momentum behind this. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Derek, and it was an honor to have you on the podcast. It was great to be here. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Tape the People. And I'll see you back here next week. Make sure you rate us wherever uh, you listen to the podcast and make sure that you tell a friend to tune in as well. 